Hey folks, Ned here. Over the past 25 years, I've talked with thousands of parents of high school students, parents who care deeply about their kids' education and how they deal with stress and the pressure to succeed. But these parents need to work with a team they trust won't just pile on more pressure to achieve better grades and scores. This is why I started Prep Matters in 1997, to create a different kind of experience for test preparation, tutoring, and college admissions planning. This podcast and my books reflect our company's philosophy and approach to helping students. If you have a high school student and would like to talk about putting in place a plan, please get in touch with us. Visit our website at prepmatters.com or call 301-951-0350. That's 301-951-0350. Thanks, and now back to our show. Kids who are in unsafe environments where their caregivers may be scary sometimes, responsive sometimes, unpredictable, their brains mature faster because they sort of have to. They're called on to do the tasks of adulthood of keeping that child safe. And as a result, they lose out some of that flexibility and maturation that we would hope to see that makes us more emotionally resilient, that makes us more adaptable to change that makes us less fearful and stressed. And that's why we see these sort of long-term negative impacts from childhood adversity. Welcome to the Self-Driven Child Podcast. I'm your host, Ned Johnson, and co-author with Dr. William Stickshrude of the books, The Self-Driven Child, The Science and Sense of Giving Your Kids More Control Over Their Lives. And what do you say? How to talk with kids to build motivation, stress tolerance, and a happy home. On this podcast, we talk with parenting and education experts, and I'm delighted to say that our guest today is both of those things and many more. And before we get started, let me frame up the conversation today. We all know the stress and challenges created by the COVID pandemic-19, and to different degrees, we've experienced the enormous individual and collective difficulties of disrupted schooling, work, and socializing. Principal among our concerns, though, at least for parents and educators and perhaps future employers, is the impact that stress has had on the developing brains of children. In today's episode, we are going to discuss reporting on a fascinating and harrowing study of the literal impact of that stress on children's brains. But before we get to that, allow me to introduce my guest, journalist Catherine Reynolds-Lewis. Catherine is an award-winning science journalist, parent, educator, and author of The Good News About Bad Behavior, Why Kids Are Less Disciplined Than Ever, and What to Do About It. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, Mother Jones, The New York Times, Parents, and The Washington Post. A Harvard physics graduate, Catherine lives in the New York, D.C. area in a multiracial, multigenerational household with her husband, Brian, and three wonderful children. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Ned. It is such a delight to be here with you and to talk about this research. It is pretty powerful stuff. So to begin with us, can you tell us about this really fascinating study? Yeah, so a team of researchers at Stanford University were really the first to compare MRI scans of teenagers' brains, of the physical structures in their brains from before the pandemic and after the pandemic, and to document significant differences. So this is a group out of the Neurodevelopment, Affect, and Psychopathology Lab at Stanford, mm. the SNAP Lab. Ha! Like that. <laughs> and they compared compared MRI scans of 128 children, half taken before and half taken around the end of the first year of the pandemic. 
Mm. And they discovered actual growth in the volume of the hippocampus and the amygdala, which we know mm -hmm. are brain areas that control access to some memories. And the amygdala, of course, helps regulate fear, stress, other emotions. And they also found thinning of the tissues in the cortex, which is involved in executive functioning and all those self-driven skills that we like to talk about in both of our books. So these are changes that do happen in normal adolescent development as kids mature from their childhood brain through the sort of sensitive period in adolescence into adulthood. However, the pandemic appeared to have accelerated the process by maybe three or more years on average. Wow. So pretty dramatic. And this is a group from the San Francisco Silicon Valley area where the restrictions were pretty severe. So they were really locked down for you know nine or 10 months. Wow. Now, Dr. Ian Gottlieb, who, who runs that lab, and I guess Rappen was the key lead on the study, likens the results of these brain changes to pandemic stress, likens them to the effects of early childhood adversity. Can you talk more about what we know about the effects of early childhood adversity and why <laughs> the connection what he saw to that is actually kind of concerning? Right. So uh, you or I or sort of parent on the street might say, oh, my kid's brains mature faster. Isn't that great? But actually, there's a huge body of research on adverse childhood experiences and the impact of items on the list of adverse childhood experiences, such as losing a parent, experiencing abuse, witnessing abuse. There's, I think, eight factors. Mm -hmm. And for example, Nadine Burke Harris has done a tremendous amount of work on this. Her book, The Deepest Well, explains how the more adverse childhood experiences you have, the more vulnerable you are as an adult to depression, anxiety, addiction, other mental illness, and even raises the risk of cancer, diabetes, heart disease, job loss, long-term negative outcomes. So the way I've heard it explained is that children have a long period of brain maturation. Mm. We are the only species that has such a huge head and that has dependent children for so long. I and know. that's so that they can have a long period of exposure to the environment, of learning and growth in a safe environment. And that's the ideal is for our kids to be in a safe and secure environment with non-anxious parents, as you always right. talk about, right, right. and to be able to develop their brain to be as flexible and adaptable as possible. Mm. For kids who are in unsafe environments where their caregivers may be scary sometimes, responsive sometimes, unpredictable, their brains mature faster because they sort of have to. They're called on to do the tasks of adulthood of keeping that child safe. And as a result, they lose out some of that flexibility and maturation that we would hope to see that makes us more emotionally resilient, that makes us more adaptable to change, that makes us less fearful and stressed. And that's why we see these sort of long-term negative impacts from childhood adversity. Mm. I take away from that, simply put, we would like children to be able to be children as long as they can be children. Growing up fast is not uh, uh, not such a good thing. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, the deepest wealth, maybe we'll get to this at the end, healing the long-term effects of childhood adversity is really powerful stuff. For folks listening, there's a, a great study I'll put in the show notes. You may have heard about this, Catherine, um, a study that she did with NIMH, and they looked at the whole population. And for folks who had an ACE score, so this adverse childhood experience that you're just enumerating, had an ACE score of zero, of that population, 3% would have either a learning disability or a behavioral disorder. But 
if you had an A score of four or higher, 51% would have learning disability or behavioral disorder. And so her wonderful question is she says, we so often look at people who are struggling, you know, acting out and certainly some of the impacts we've seen during COVID of substance use disorder and disruptions and fight and truancy in school and some, you know, substance domestic violence. Um, certainly, you know, our, our, our dear friend, Jess Leahy talks about the addiction inoculation, about the effects of stress. The more stress we have, the more of these predictable bad outcomes that, that come along with it. So maybe we'll, she talks about the things we can do to heal this will be, uh, will be helpful. Now, I wanted to ask, do you want to talk about how they're able to do the study, what the study was supposed to be and how, I guess, through Silicon Valley, how they pivoted? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I actually think this is a great example of recovering from a global pandemic. And yeah, yeah. as actually Dr. Gottlieb himself said, making lemonade out of lemons. Mm -hmm. So they were originally in the middle of a longitudinal study of 200 plus children, where every two years they were planning to take MRI scans of their brain structures and the kids and their parents would answer mental health questionnaires. So they had done two waves of data collection. And in the third wave, year six, the pandemic happened. Right. Mm. So all of a sudden, we're not allowed to do in-person MRI scans of kids' brains. They were really shut down for data collection for about eight or nine months. So they were scrambling as many of us who, you know, I reported in school right. that was the middle of a project <laughs> that required in-person observing of education. And so we've all had to adapt. And they realized that they were in this unique position of having pre-pandemic brain scans and post-pandemic brain scans, yeah, yeah. So they did what's called a pair matching. They looked at the pre-pandemic scans and then tried to match each 16-year-old boy with certain characteristics mm. to a 16-year-old boy in actually 2020 was when they did most of the second group of scans mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that they could have a really clear mapping of pre to post-pandemic experiences. And then they took this really interesting algorithmic model that allows you to predict the brain age and using oh, wow. all the structures in the brain and actually a database of tens of thousands of brain scans. And they predicted on average the brain age of the first group compared to the brain age of the second group. And in those you know, nine or 10 months, maybe a year at most between the first and second scan, about three years of brain age had passed. Wow. Wow. It makes me think, I can't remember whose research I read some while ago talking about, because you and I both read on education about sort of hot housing children, right? You know, hot house tomatoes, they grow up fast. We can get them to market. They look all red on the outside, but they're not quite the same yeah. product, right? It's the same way that the slow maturation of, uh, of brains. Wow. I'll go back a little bit to what you talked about, the changes in brains. Just to point it out one more time for folks, the amygdala is the primary stress response part of the brain, right? And so growth in the amygdala is not quite what we're <laughs> looking for, right? And, and the cortex, just to echo point you made before, all those executive functions. So organization planning, problem solving, this is part of the reason why so many educators talk about these kids disappeared as eighth graders and they popped up as sophomores, but in some ways they still look like eighth graders. Then people will be thinking, yeah, but, but the brain's matured more quickly. What we know that goes on during adolescence is this pruning of brains in response to what matters, what doesn't matter. And it really should be a very iterative process and very kind of slow and thoughtful as opposed to your point, 
being done all at once because presumably, and I you may be able to talk on this, presumably if these brains matured really quickly, it was really in response to stress. And we know that the really the purpose of the amygdala is to perceive and react to threat to keep us alive effectively. And everything else is higher order, right? When we also have that thinning of the cortex with all those executive functions, it basically means our alarm systems are working overtime. But anyone who's like, whoa, whoa, hold up, wait, we don't, you know, <laughs> part of the brain hasn't had the chance to grow up and learn the discernment that we wanted to have. Yeah. And one of the points that some other researchers I interviewed made is that this is a snapshot. So we don't mm. know, first of all, if these changes will persist. We all kind of remember that first year of the pandemic was extremely stressful. Everyone, adults as well, you know, who knows, we may have shown some changes in our brain. Right, and right, right. So they're actually planning to continue the study and take another snapshot at the next two year period to see if these changes persist. And one brain structure, you know, a snapshot in time can be hard to really draw conclusions from. Right, right, right. So right, that's right. the other sort of qualification that the researchers I interviewed put is that, you know, there's all different kind of growth and pruning and changes. So we don't want to draw too many conclusions, but bottom line, we can now see what the other sort of psychological research has shown us. Yes, children and teenagers were dramatically impacted and harmed by the pandemic in terms of anxiety, executive function, depression. And to me, it's sort of this hard evidence of what we've sort of already known from the psychological research. Well, and it's interesting, there was a piece early in December in the Washington Post, some great reporting by Donna St. George and Valerie Strauss, education reporters, about how much more vast are the mental health challenges that kids have struggled with. And the one that really jumped out to me, and it sounds like it was the exact same time period as Dr. Gottlieb's study in which you're reporting, that for girls between February of 2020 and March of 2021, the hospitalizations for suicide attempts jumped 51% which is really dramatic. And I, in the back of my head, I always kind of hear this, you know, get off my lawn kind of voice of people saying, ah, oh, this is all in their heads. And when we pair this with one Dr. Gottlieb, yeah, literally it is in their heads. We can actually see not just the outcomes psychologically, but the physical changes to structures of brains. And I would even add, you know, people in response to some of this research say, well, other generations went through World War II or they went through Vietnam or they went through other world disasters. And the difference that I would point out is that mm -hmm. in those world disasters, we were together, right? Human beings mm. were working together. They were having quilting bees and pooling resources for food and getting together in person. We are social animals and we thrive being together, especially in adolescence. Right. So right. For these teenagers to endure being locked down in their rooms, asked to do school on Zoom with often right. no contact, right? right? It's right, a right. different kind of stress than we've ever seen in the history of humankind. And so the folks are like, oh, these snowflakes need to grow up. It's just, I think is unreasonable. Yeah, and, and not supported by the research. I'll uh, invoke a, a, a great insight from our, our mutual friend, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, who talks about resilience and the recipe for resilience as she frames it up is adversity plus support. Catherine wrote a piece for the Washington Post, I think in March of 2020, I'll, I'll put this in the notes as well, about whether this pandemic and, and in March of 2020, I had no idea how bad it was gonna be, but whether this would be a source of future resilience because 
for all the ways you know you and I both talk about the overparenting, the helicopter parenting, the tendency to which we as loving parents, we want to protect and soothe our kids. But sometimes we deprive them of the opportunity for meaningful challenge and skinning their knees and everything else, getting something other than an A is a source of developed resilience because it, again, is that experience of some kind of adverse experience, being able to cope with it oneself rather than being saved over and over that develops that. I feel a little remiss now because I perhaps didn't, well, didn't fully anticipate just how bad things we're going to get. But you mentioned the work of Dr. Payne Bryson's co-author, well, of course, the wonderful Dan Siegel, who talks a little bit about post-traumatic growth. Can you talk about that a little bit as you understand or what you, what you learned from him? Yeah, absolutely. So it's easy for us as parents, caregivers, guardians, educators to look at this kind of research and panic, right? Mm -hmm. Our amygdala goes into overdrive. So I think it's really important to recognize that we can go anywhere from here. And there's also a huge body of research on post-traumatic growth and Mm -hmm. protective factors that can predict after a traumatic experience if someone will go in the direction of all those negative outcomes we talked before, or if they will actually experience growth, if they will make meaning from the traumatic experience that they are resilient and find strength in themselves they didn't know they had. So this is where we adults can really make an impact in helping our teens make meaning from what we've all experienced, but especially they've experienced in the last three years, whether that's helping them recognize the ways that they coped, the ways that they right, right, right. To, to survive and thrive or giving them the supports they need and not expecting them to just catch up and be back on track, you know? So- Oh, yeah, that, that drives me crazy. I mean, I think everyone, particularly people who know, know the, these issues more deeply than I, that, that people heal up and then they catch up, not, not the other way around. When all the studies came out in the start of the school year about the pandemic learning loss, and I thought, goodness, if if we feel like we're going to double the pace of instruction, right, and then sort of like Lucille Ball on the faster and faster and faster to add more stress to, to schools, to parents, to teachers is not where we want to be. Jessica Lee, he shared with us the other day a, a great piece about teachers as kind of first responders and how we ask a lot of teachers, but don't necessarily support them or give them the training they didn't intend to be counselors, but they often fall into that role. And I wanted to echo a point that you made just a, a few minutes ago about this idea of being a, a non-anxious presence, a, a wonderful term that we uh, swiped from Rabbi Edwin Freeman about how helpful it is if we as adults, as we as teachers, as grandparents, parents, what have you, can be less anxious. Because little people, young people, teenagers look to us and they respond to our stress. And so goodness knows this whole thing has been hard. And and of course, hard in really uneven ways. I and mean, some people had a really hard time who were really well-resourced. And, and goodness knows if you're under-resourced, it's even worse. I'm hopeful that all of us can, to the best of our ability, take a collective breath and say, this is hard. And for most of us, the hardest things that we've ever gone through. I'm a big fan of Tom Broca's The Greatest Generation. And think about... We all develop the ability to get through hard stuff, not by reading about it, <laughs> right? But, but by going through it. And to your point, by going through this together as much as we can reach out to support for other people or reach out to other people for support. I think it's a really big deal. 
So I'll ask this of you. So you are obviously both a journalist and an educator and a parent of three terrific kids as well. So when you put on both your journalism education hat and parenting hat all at once, what are some of the takeaways for you for the study? Did this shift your thinking at all or sort of make you double down on great things you're already doing? I love that you frame it that way, Dan. <laughs> I certainly found it validating because mm -hmm. for the last three school years, at the beginning of every school year in 2020, we were saying, this is a mental health year. We're not going to worry about academics. And then last year, we we're like, this is a mental health year. And even this year, I see in my kids that they need to put their mental health first. Right, and right. That doesn't mean shying away from challenge or not having chores or not having responsibilities because those are the things that build muscles. Right, but it right, means right, right. when we as parents and guardians have a child with a C or a missed assignment or an uncompleted chore mm. or something where they've fallen down, we face a choice, right? We mm. can come down on them predict gloom, right? You won't get into college with these grades. You're going to have fewer opportunities right, right. or we can be their partner in finding the solution and ourselves see it. Like when we see that often we have that panic and if we can calm our own bodies, right? Find our Zen and ourselves see it as a great learning opportunity. And this right, is the right. good news in the good news about bad behavior right. it's an opportunity. It's right. like a great red flag of what your kid's struggling with. It's right. a wonderful thing that we know. Knowledge is power. And then team with them to find a solution rather than predicting doom and gloom, you know, help them remember past times when they faced a similar challenge. What worked for them then? What would work now? How can I play a role? So resetting our own expectations and resisting all of the conversation around us about learning loss or mm -hmm, mm -hmm. college admission season or where they're going to be because we're planning for the long term, right? We want healthy, capable 35-year-olds. And right. there's so many great things that I picked up in the last three years because of all the research and reading I've done. One is, mm -hmm. you know, it's really easy just to focus on the things we want for our kids. We want them to be able to manage their behavior, thoughts, and emotions to make healthy relationships and identify healthy partners, right? Mm -hmm. healthy. And we want them to find a way to contribute their unique skills to the world. And they can do that no matter what path they take. And if we start boxing them in that they have to do X, go to college or go to this college or go to this rank of college, right? We're actually distracting them from that inner right. voice they need to listen to. So I think I got completely off track of your question. No, no, no. That's exactly kind of, no, your point was knowing what you know and you as a parent, what are you thinking about and how do you focus? And I think it's an incredibly powerful message. What I hear from that sort of two things. One is really to take the long view that we're all, <laughs> years ago, my wife was sort of gently nudging my daughter whose room looked like a you know tornado had whipped through the baggage claim at BWI because she's like, holy smokes. And my daughter <laughs> sagely and somewhat sarcastically said, of course, my room isn't perfect, mom. I live in here. And I think you could apply that to lives that, of course, my life isn't perfect or look perfect because it's constantly under construction. And whose life isn't, particularly adolescents. And to pick up on a point that you made of, you know, a kid, particularly a kid who was a straight A student and then wasn't, right? And we know when we look at that percentage of 
51% increase in adolescent suicide attempts by girls and much, much, you know, 5% for boys. We know that on average, girls and women are more vulnerable to stress, partly because they have brains that are more developed than boys, but I'm trying to catch up. But we know that oftentimes those kids who are really the most capable are the ones who got whacked the most. It's pretty hard if you were a straight A student and thought you were going to have a straight A life. And now you're decidedly not. Actually, that, that same piece in the Washington Post profiled this young woman named Rihanna Alexander, who's a mental health advocate now in Chandler. And I actually interviewed her. She said, I was a, a gifted and talented kid and I was a straight A student. And I get all these incredible emails home from my teachers about Rihanna's so amazing and she gets all A's. My parents are like, you're so amazing. You get all A's until I couldn't. And I basically pieced out on school and I was decidedly not an A student when there was all this mental health challenges, including three adolescent suicides in nine days in her part of the world. She said, I founded a 501c3 to support mental health in teens because from my perspective, not enough was being done. And she said, my teachers don't send any emails home about the things that I'm doing. She says, as though the only way that I can contribute to the world is to get A's. It was a pretty damning <laughs> commentary observation about what she's currently experiencing in the world. But the, the point that you made about there's so many paths to successful lives and, you know, kids who were on the, what felt like the A path and now they're not. It's so much easier to help kids get back on a path to building the lives that they want when we can tell them, look, this has been really hard and this is not the way you wanted it. But I'm confident that you're still on a path to build the life that you want. And we can much more credibly do that when we can ourselves hold the belief that our kids are on a path that they can get there themselves as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for parents and guardians, find educational environments where they are getting positive feedback mm. for the mental health work they do, for right. the progress they made. I mean, I'm, I'm going to brag on my kids' educational teachers because yeah. I get, you know, notes saying, wow, two years ago, she was really off the rails or wow, in October, we didn't think it was gonna look like this and she really turned it around. So I think find environments where you're gonna be looking at progress, looking at skills, not mm -hmm. outcomes. All we care about are the skills because those right. our kids take with them forever, right? right. A right. passes in the next semester, you need another A. Right. <laughs> Yep, I agree. I agree. I agree completely. And I would add a quick note in support of teachers that the more that we can support teachers in all the ways that they deserve and, and need support, the more they can do their best possible work with our students. And I know that parents obviously get concerned and frustrated by things that the needs of the kids that aren't being met. But just like we rarely nag children into cleaning their room consistently, <laughs> we're not likely to nag teachers into being their best selves. For our students. So I think we're both big advocates of supporting all educational systems everywhere because all kids deserve the best teachers and teachers being the best versions of themselves. So our kids can be the best versions of themselves. So. Yeah. The other thing I would actually point to is a story I just did for the Washington Post in August on the five mental health skills that parents oh, can learn. Yes. Because I do think a lot of, for me, I've learned as I said before, we do need to manage our own reactivity. And for me, it's a practice. 
It's not yes, like it I just wrote this book or I read all this research and suddenly yep. I'm fixed and yep. I don't ever worry. Of course I worry about my kids, but we want to find that balance, that right level of stress that you talk about often right. where we're paying attention, we're giving the support that's needed, but we're not tipping over. And so much of that is surrounding yourself with other parents and guardians who reinforce the approach that's going to really serve your kid well long term tuning out or muting or blocking the people who are just like <laughs> brag 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 about achievement right. that's not helpful and i do think it's a practice so checking in with ourselves as adults like how am i doing do i need to make a shift in my social group or you know yep. that i'm consuming <laughs> <laughs> that's really important as an ongoing practice ah that's so well said and i will include that that is a wonderful piece i i am so glad you reminded me about that because I'd, I'd forgotten about that Catherine Reynolds Lewis, thank you for joining me. I'm, I'm excited to share your journalistic insights and your parenting insights uh, with folks. It's all just terrific. I'm again, Ned Johnson. I'm the host of the Self-Driven Child podcast. And as you see, I have the great opportunity to talk with really wise and wonderful folks about things that are helpful to all of us, helping our children be the best that they can and helping us as parents be the best that we can be. So thank you for listening. Catherine, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Great to talk with you, Ned. Thanks. Hey folks, Ned here. Over the past 25 years, I've talked with thousands of parents of high school students, parents who care deeply about their kids' education and how they deal with stress and the pressure to succeed. But these parents need to work with a team they trust won't just pile on more pressure to achieve better grades and scores. This is why I started Prep Matters in 1997, to create a different kind of experience for test preparation, tutoring, and college admissions planning. This podcast and my books reflect our company's philosophy and approach to helping students. If you have a high school student and would like to talk about putting in place a plan, please get in touch with us. Visit our website at prepmatters.com or call 301-951-0350. That's 301-951-0350. Thanks. Thanks.